Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Flushing is Burning. I'm Grace Carbone and as always I'm here with Christian Romo. Christian, how you doing? A lot better than the Mets, but I think there's also (laughs) some reason for hope. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little, it's it's kind of difficult these past few weeks to do worse than the Mets. Um, But like you said, I mean, they've, they won what, three games this week? That's an improvement. It is. Um, And granted, it was not against the best competition, um, but I... I think there was definitely a a reason to believe that if the Mets could not do well against the Reds and the last place Nationals, that you could throw the season away, that there, there was no hope left for this team. And uh, they didn't really do well against either the Reds, <laughs> and they're currently not doing that well against the Nationals at the time of reporting. Uh, but neither has the rest of the division. And it, it's funny how like this, uh, this Mets team that is severely underperforming one game under 500 is still in the thick of it. And only because there's like two good teams in the National League, maybe three. Like I, I don't exactly know where to place this Mets team, but they're, they're not playing up to their standards, but they're also not playing much worse than literally everybody else. Yeah, I mean, the the Braves got swept this weekend, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny because, like, the Mets didn't, again, the Mets didn't look great. Although, hopefully yesterday, I mean, we're recording this Monday, so yesterday there was the, the doubleheader. Hopefully the second game of that doubleheader is going to spell good things for their offense and not the, uh, not just be an aberration. Um, but... I think the other point of hope is Scherzer looks better yesterday and Verlander really looked great in his start against the Reds. Verlander looks like an ace and that that's exactly what the Mets are, are paying him for. Uh, I think he went like 70 pitches in his first start, but decided in his second start to go a hundred plus. And he, he gave up that one run in the first inning and then nothing like not even a hit after that. And that, that was what looked most impressive from him the fact that like Mets fans had gone so long without a quality start of any kind this season to see anyone go seven and give up just one run, it it, it felt like an oasis. And to, to have Scherzer, don't necessarily want to say he's like, you know, all the way back uh, pitching, you know, a strong outing against a pretty bad offensive Nats team. Um, but to have Scherzer and Verlander at the top, uh, to have Senga where he is, it, at the least, it means that they don't have to rely on a Jose Budo or a David Peterson start. Uh, I say that as David Peterson's getting the start uh, to, <laughs> today against the Nationals. But uh, to have starting pitchers that are back and healthy, that in itself, I think, is going to do wonders for this team. And hopefully, I mean, it looks like Carrasco is going to be is he, he just started a rehab assignment, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he should hopefully be back soon, and hopefully he comes back. He doesn't have to be an ace if he's just a solid number four or five, honestly, at this point over McGill or Peterson. That will be a welcome welcome sight. Um, but yeah, it's it's Scherzer only threw five innings, but it was five innings of one-run ball as opposed to the last you know couple starts where he hasn't looked 
really that good. And when Verlander stepped out of the dugout for inning seven, I was losing my mind. And he looked great. Like, but I was just absolutely thrilled to see finally, other than that one Lucchese start and that one Senga start, just to see someone in his second start be like, all right, I'm coming in and I'm locking this one down. Uh, Verlander, the first hit that he gave up in his second start to Jonathan India was on a 92 mile an hour fastball. Uh, the very last batter he faced in the seventh inning, he was pumping it up to 97. Like this is, this is a level of competence that we haven't seen from a Mets starting pitcher since last year. I, I, I can't remember the last time seeing a Mets start and thinking, oh, like that's, that's the game. And the Mets only scored two runs in that game, but that's all they needed. And it was, it was a, it was very, very heartening to see. And I'm not saying that like the Mets have a good starting <laughs> rotation right now because that uh, is pretty clearly not the case. But again, when you get a a Carrasco back, who I believe is scheduled, uh, or they're hoping that he'll come back against the Guardians. What's with the Mets bringing back their pitchers against their former teams? Like, is this a psychological component or something? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but. To have Carrasco back, at the very least, you limit Lucchese, you limit Peterson, you limit the the Budo innings. You don't have to put out a Steven Nagosek to to start games. Like it's 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 a really nice thing to know that like you can put guys in their proper positions for leverage, which is not something that Buck Walter is very good at to begin with. But now he has the personnel where there's like no excuse at this point. And you mentioned Verlander's velocity sort of going in and getting higher as the game went on. Scherzer's velocity was up this start over last start. I think the last start it was around 92 on his fastball. And this start he had it averaging, I think, 94, which is what he said he would like to get it up to at least with the, you know, injury issues that he's been dealing with with his neck and everything like that. It's, it's heartening and hopefully this spells, if not a meteoric rise, which I think would be insane to ask for at this point, just to be able to tread water with the other teams in this division to the point where at the deadline they can make a move that will propel them through the rest of the season. And like you said, the the bringing in of Carrasco and sort of limiting these these spot starters, these emergency starters, these AAA starters to less importance in the rotation will help, as well as the bullpen looking better as of late the bullpen looks and here's here's the thing like i think i've been over praising the bullpen the last few weeks simply because they have just looked comparatively so much better than the starting rotation i think i took a look at the numbers recently and the bullpen is middle of the pack there I, I think they're eighth in the national league in the ra which is better than where the starting pitching is i believe <laughs> the starting pitching was like firmly in 14th or 15th for for a long time there um but I think Mets fans need to remember that this is a bullpen that's missing uh, their best player. Edwin Diaz is likely not going to pitch this season, which not only means that you don't have access to your best arm, but also means that everyone just kind of gets pushed up into a position where they're likely not terribly comfortable pitching in. And I also think that this bullpen could be more effective if it were managed a little bit more effectively. Like, we don't necessarily need to see the the Jeff Brigham's as well as he's been pitching recently, or the Steven Nagosics in high leverage situations. Those should be limited to your best pitchers. And to, to see Adam Ottavino warm up and then not enter games, as I have seen so many times in the past couple of weeks, just makes me think that like, yeah, I don't exactly know what, what Buck's thinking in these situations, but I, I don't necessarily think this is a top five bullpen in, in the National League, but uh, hopefully they don't have to be with, with the return of these you know very good veteran starters. Buck's bullpen management in double headers specifically is baffling. You mentioned Adovino getting up and warming and never getting in. He in the in the double header situation in the first game, if they're within a run, he has shown over the however many double headers they've had this season, two or three, a reluctance to see that as high leverage. He doesn't want. It's not. He's not going to use those high-end arms that they have in the bullpen, your Adovinos, your Robertsons, at this point, even Drew Smith. Um, 
in the first game for fear that he might not have them for the second game, which is not the way to manage in a doubleheader. You want to win the game that you can win and not focus on, well, what if potentially in the next game you have that situation now? Um, which is why in the first game of the doubleheader on Mother's Day, it was particularly baffling that uh, Dominic Leone, who had a elbow scare a couple of days prior, was did two innings in a row when Adovino and Robertson and Smith were all available. They all they all could have gotten in there for one inning. Wouldn't have been a big deal. They ended up not de- needing any of them for the second game because they went up five runs, six runs, seven runs. It, it's baffling that some of his decisions, but again, now you have your Robertsons, your Adovinos, who in the shift after Diaz, they're not the ones that the problem is. Like, oh, Robertson becoming the closer? That's fine. Adovino becoming your eighth inning guy or a closer if you have to have two games closed in a row? That's fine. It's the, you know, I, it's Tommy Hunter seeing significant innings. It's uh, Zach Muckenhern getting two innings in a row and each of those innings struggling. Um, it's Brooks really justifying all of my hatred for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like Buck has it halfway there. Because someone got in his ear at some point and said, David Robertson, Adam Adovino, you're going to have to split their efforts. No one can be the guy that gets the save. You're going to have to use Robertson in the higher leverage, Adovino in the lower leverage, but those are going to be your two late inning guys. And it seems like Buck has taken that to heart because they're splitting the ninth they're they're not chasing the glory saves they're both in their you know late 30s at this point so i don't think that like they care too much about getting the ninth inning or the eighth inning or whatever but it seems like those are the two pitchers he's limited that uh that strategy to it 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 doesn't seem as if he's really internalized this idea that a tie game in the seventh inning with the heart of the order is the highest leverage situation that a bullpen can face and so you don't want to bring dominic leone in that situation you want to bring in your best guys and yes dominic leone might at this point be the third best reliever in the mets bullpen but as you mentioned there was an elbow scare he hadn't pitched in a really long time and everybody else was available and i wonder how slowly buck is going to adjust to this because i don't think he's dumb i I think he is is someone who adjusts to modern baseball maybe slower than most but will eventually get it but how many games are they going to need to drop in order for this to happen and and that that is what i think might make the difference between a team that makes a second or third wild card spot and a team that doesn't it's at this point you know you're What you see is what you get with Buck, right? We saw decisions like this last year. The lineup for today just came out, not to, you know, date this podcast, but you're getting Tommy Pham hitting cleanup and Beatty being sat for the second time in four days. It's it's, for Escobar. There's going to be decisions with Buck, and this goes back decades of his managerial, you know, tenure at four different teams, five different teams. He's going to make baffling decisions like this where you can't you, you can't see what's going to happen. You go, why would you do that? But you got to you got to hope it works out. Um, luckily, sometimes his his hand gets forced. Um, Francisco Alvarez now, especially with Tomas Nino being hurt, is just the starting catcher now. And yep. he has really no I mean, he started Michael Perez during um, the, the Saturday game that became the first game on Sunday. And. He hit really well in that game, but Alvarez now is just, he's good enough defensively, and over the last couple weeks, he's been really, really good defense uh, offensively to the point that you can't sit him. You got to let him play, and, you know, the, the young guys at this point might just be the savior of this team in one way or another, whether it's just the young guys who are with the team now, whether it's calling people up, whatever it is, it's it's. It's going to happen how it happens, with or without Buck. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I was listening on the radio yesterday, and uh, Howie Rose pointed out when Michael Perez 
got his third hit of the game, he finished with four hits, that he was already halfway to Tomas Nito's overall production this season. Tomas Nito has six hits in 51 plate appearances. Michael Bedez has four in five plate appearances. And that is how you force the manager's hand. Like, the, the, the older guys aren't playing very well right now. Apparently, Syracuse has a hitting lab because all of the young guys are hitting <laughs> exceptionally well either once they get to the majors or in AAA. And I, I don't know if this happens at all this season. This, this, this might happen if the Mets season just falls completely apart. But there is a realistic future where Canna, Marte, Escobar, you're not hitting very well. Therefore, we're going to bring up Michael Perez to be the backup catcher for Alvarez. We're going to bring up Mark Ventos. We're going to bring up Ronnie Mauricio. Like, this is a very, very good sign, both in the near and long-term future, because uh, the, the concern that, like, the Mets' top-end prospects might not be good enough to land a, let's say, Shohei Otani for half a season, I think that's gone at this point because Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez are major league contributors right now. Their their defense has has played exceptionally well. Both of them, I believe, are still uh, below average offensively, but climbing every week. And this is something that should help the Mets as long as like those decisions are made because, yeah, it's, it's really, really tough seeing like six through eight in the order being automatic outs. It, it's tough to see... Luis Guillorme grounding out. It's tough to see Escobar striking out, knowing that like there there's there's reinforcements that are there that you know can hit better because anybody can hit better than Escobar at this point. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if the Shohei Otani thing's gonna happen for anyone this season. The Angels have been pretty steadfast in saying that no matter what happens, they're not trading him. Uh who we'll see we'll see if that actually does work out, although I do think you're correct. I think at this point it's probably that ship has sailed for the Mets this season because past Alvarez and Beatty, who they're almost certainly not going to trade. Like there's, there's no really conceivable world where they say, you know what we could do without Beatty. Let's have Escobar starting every day again, or let's have Vientos play third base, which I've seen in person with my own two eyes. And it is genuinely terrifying. Mm. I, I think I watched him run halfway across the field before he threw the ball to first base. Um, but it is. It's going to be a lot of seeing, you know, especially between now and the deadline, because if Otani doesn't happen, which is probably a high likelihood, it's not going to happen for them, at least this season. Um, who knows what else? You know, they could make a minor trade for someone like they did last season where they traded for Daniel Vogel back. And, and he's he's one of their best hitters this year, which is which is crazy. I don't think anyone saw that happening um, because he gets on base so much. He's so good at it. Uh, but they also have this, this little unknown uh catcher down in triple a who he could be seeing some some playing time soon um you know well i don't know if you've heard from gary sanchez is in triple a and uh he is absolutely tearing the cover off the ball for the mets in syracuse grace two weeks ago i texted a giants friend of mine saying gary sanchez is a giant <laughs> and then the very next day the mets signed him and <laughs> yeah uh i'm i'm I don't know how excited I would be for a Gary Sanchez promotion. Uh, but, hey, they need a right-handed designated hitter. So, you know, why not? He's not a, he's not a great catcher. So if he's going to be anything, that half of the platoon might not be a bad idea with how Tommy Pham has looked. Cleanup hitter Tommy Pham has looked recently and and Escobar and Canna and stuff like that. If he's going to come up and hit, who's going to, like, why should I say no to him coming up and hitting? And listen, the, the little teeny tiny petty part of me is like, ooh, I'd love to see him come up, be really good, and then play against the Yankees and be really good. That that Curtis Granderson special? Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, here, here's here's the, the overall scenario the Mets find themselves in. The Mets lost, I think, six straight series for the first time in 10 years. They're a quarter of the way through the season, and they are a game under 500. And Fangraph still gives them a 58% chance to make the playoffs. I, I don't know how much that says about the Mets or how much that <laughs> says about the rest of the National League East. Uh, but the, the season is not lost. It is not over. 
as much as I would kind of wish it was because it means <laughs> I have to continue watching this particular team. They're still in it against all odds. It's the the Mets aren't good, but the field the rest of the field might be worse here. Ugh. Um, it's just. We'll see what happens. Come, you know, again, we're a quarter of the way through the season. It's not an insignificant portion of the season, but other teams have had worse starts and have turned it around to have better finishes. Uh, 2015 Mets didn't look too hot this time of year, and then we know what happened with them. Uh, we're bumping up right against our, our little arbitrary time limit, limit so we might want to uh, take a little break here and come back with some different discussions. And we are back. Uh, Grace, I think we talked about this a little bit in either the first or the second episode, but I, I think the unfortunate truth is that New York's number one queer Mets fan happens to be George Santos. Do you know of anybody else who might supplant him? Because I would really like someone to supplant him. I just can't think of anyone at this point. I, <laughs> I mean, he's certainly the most infamous uh, yeah, uh, the, the Q score is high. Uh, the, the New York Times mentions are high. Anyway, uh, the past week of George Santos news has been very funny, in my opinion. Uh, he pled guilty to charges that he incurred in Brazil in 2008. Uh, the funny thing that I found about this was, was uh, George Santos was charged with um, falsifying his identity and using a stolen checkbook to buy thousands of dollars worth of goods in a suburb of Rio de Janeiro. And the Brazilian authorities basically dropped this case when they lost him. Like they, they didn't know where he was until he popped up in 2022, winning an election to become a representative of the state of New York. And that's when Brazilian authorities were like, there he is, <laughs> like we, can, <laughs> we can go charge him now. And uh, the, the other thing I, I find really funny about this is that uh, this is not the only legal trouble that George Santos is currently in. The state of New York is also charging him with a variety of, of bad things. And, and George Santos is very vehemently denying any wrongdoing in this case while simultaneously pleading guilty to the stuff that happened in Brazil. It's almost like him saying, no, I didn't do any of this criminal stuff. Uh, but yeah, that stuff in Brazil. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, I, I did that. <laughs> you, you, can, you can charge me for that. But this New York stuff? No, no, I didn't do any of this. So I want to reiterate right off the top. He's not my representative. He's a representative of a different part of Long Island. I'm I'm also represented by like a Republican, but not this crazy one. Uh so like a guy who seems kind of more moderate, whatever I didn't vote for him. Um George Santos is one of the funniest figures in modern politics. Like yes. to the point that like I, he shouldn't be it. He shouldn't be in any sort of area of power. He's crazy. Does all the stupidest crimes you could ever imagine. But in like an entertainment level, he doesn't really have like him by himself. Does not have a ton of power. He's not the speaker. He's not. I don't think he's on any committees. I think he was taken off of pretty much any sort of position of power he would have as soon as everything started coming out. But he's so unbelievably funny. Like, in so many ways, this man, the the Jew-ish comment is still one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It, the fact that he just keeps accruing criminal charges. And then you go, and I was talking to my mom about this the other day, because she's not super up on, like, this specific current event. And she was like, I don't understand. What other bad stuff has he done? Like, I hear his name, and, like, I've heard that he's, like, kind of wacky, but, like, what other bad stuff has he done? I found an article, and I just was reading, and it went on and on. He's ripping off vets with sick dogs. He's he's creating fake charities. He's, you know, he's a drag queen in Brazil. Like, this guy just has thing after thing after thing where he lies and lies and lies and lies. And somehow, the people of the Nassau-Queens border decided, yep, that's our representative. And not just that, he's still running. Yeah, <laughs> running for re-election. And he, he, here's the other thing. You say that, like, George Santos is not your representative. 
I because we don't have any evidence that George Santos is not a Mets fan. He kind of is our representative. <laughs> he can, and he, he like here's the other thing about George Santos that that I find really funny. Like every characteristic about him just screams Disney villain from from the gay coding to the the like the nefarious things he does to to the the constant um defense of like his behavior but the thing about disney villains is that like they're actually competent like they actually get stuff done and it, it doesn't seem as if george santos is going to get away with anything because we just know so much about him already like i don't i don't understand and we i didn't know anything about george santos like prior to his election but I know that he stole hundreds of thousands of dollars of welfare money in Florida. I know that he pretended to be a volleyball star from a college that doesn't have a volleyball program that he did not attend. <laughs> I, I know that he claims to be the grandson of a Holocaust survivor. I know all of these things because he, he, he just can't stay out of the limelight. Like what, what is he thinking? What's really funny is, and I just this thought just occurred to me, had he been even like 15% less brazenly like outlandish and lying and a criminal, there's like a non-zero chance he would have thrown out the first pitch at Mets Pride Night. That's right! Because, because he's a Mets fan, and he's gay, and he's a representative, and he can't stop getting his face all over the place. Like, th this this guy is, is it's bananas every single thing like you said we know all this stuff about him because he can't stop talking about himself and he keeps lying himself into corners and then like somehow evaporating and spinning around and he's got a new lie it, it's every single and every single one like you said the volleyball star thing he was a volleyball star at a college that did not have a volleyball team he also said he attended a different college than that one but he never actually graduated high school but he went to one of the best high schools he did not actually go to that high school his mother died in 9-11 but she wasn't even in the country during 9-11 <laughs> like there's so many like it's not like he makes little lies. Like most politicians lie. Like we just know that they go out on their campaign trail and they 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 sort of polish things up and they boost themselves up and they make themselves seem a little better. But they're not, you know, they're telling little white lies. This guy is just fabricating whole cloth his entire life, and he's putting out things where he's like, "Yes, I managed ten million dollars worth of things," and but also I'm poor, but I lived in this apartment, but actually I didn't. Like just the most bizarre things that you could possibly think of, and he never even keeps them straight. Like there's never even like a straight through line of his lies it's just like he thinks of this thing one day and the next day he's an astronaut and the next day after that he was the first woman to ever vote in the united states like he just comes up with the most baffling lies that you could just see through like swiss cheese and yet he's still got elected and the best part was i remember when they were reporting on like the first time that these lies came out and everyone was like oh my god can you believe that this guy lied about all of this stuff before we even knew what the extent was going to be of his crazy lies and they, the the local news was outside of his like his headquarters his you know his office or whatever that's in his district that's like the office that goes between each representative whoever gets voted in there and he had been in office at that point for a couple months I think like it was maybe right after he had gotten like officially inaugurated into the Senate because that was when everything really started coming out was when like right before he put his hand to the book they were like uh oh everything's a lie um he had been in there in that office for months at this point he still had not changed the outside of the office so it still listed it as the um the office of representative thomas swasey uh who did not even run for that thing he just never changed it and he was like oh i'm gonna change that soon i don't even know if it's still if it still says swasey jeez uh, <laughs> i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna hand it to george santos for a couple of things one <laughs> I don't think he's lying about his sexual orientation or marital status. If if he's lying about that, it is an extremely convincing <laughs> lie. So I'll, I'll give it to you for that one. The other thing about George Santos is that I don't think he would lie about being a Mets fan because why? Why? Why would you lie about that? What? What what value do you gain as a person by claiming to be a Mets fan when you're actually not? Oh, surprise, I'm a Yankees fan. Or oh, surprise, <laughs> I like 
the the Cleveland Guardians. Like what I don't I and because of that, I have to follow him. I have to know everything about him. I have to just be aware of the George Santos news simply because I think these are the only two things I know about him that he's not lying about. <laughs> as as a fan, I'm all going to say is this, and I agree, I don't think he's lying about being gay. The marital status thing, there was like a little bit of shaky stuff where like he was he, he was married to a woman, they got divorced in 2019, although that was there was a few questions about like when that actually started and stopped and he claims to have a husband but i they there's never actually been any proof that they've gotten married or that this person exists um the the met again who's gonna lie about being a mess fan like you said what do you what do you gain from that you're in new york it's not like you're in a state or a city where there's one team there are two teams to choose from one is a notorious winner and one is a notorious loser why if you were gonna lie about liking one why would you lie about being like, I'm a fan of the losers? You know, no one lies about that. What I think is going to happen about with him specifically in these cases, don't know. I'm going to guess something bad because very clearly he's just a pathological liar. Um, this is going to make, as a fan of the 2016 documentary Wiener about the Anthony Wiener mayoral campaign, this is going to make a great documentary one day. Like, I hope someone's on the phone with him right now getting access to film because we know he will let them there's no way that he would say no because he thinks that he is going to to win everything and and be the best and he's going to be a star why wouldn't you want to get in there and film this because this is going to be the ultimate implosion to capture on film does he get reelected? I, what's sad about where I am and what I know about these various districts, I genuinely don't know. I think Ugh. it's a coin flip. <laughs> I think he could. I really think he could. If he, if, if, if he doesn't actually get, like, convicted and removed from office, I think he could. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> we're we're, we're going to leave it there and come back in Act 3 with some lighter fare. <laughs> this is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, and we are back with Act 3. Um, so we didn't talk about this because it's not really a performance thing. It's more of an aesthetic thing. But I am a huge, huge fan of the Mets' new ass-slap celebration. Yes, uh, and it, <laughs> it, it is um, the first dugout celebration we've seen from the Mets this year. And uh, I am a big fan of it, too. I always like a little extra horniness in the dugout. <laughs> I I was thinking about um, a a podcast that I listened to a few weeks ago, um, the Effectively Wild podcast brought up by Fangraphs, and the managing editor, Meg Rowley, did an investigation on dugout celebrations, and she discovered that the vast majority of dugout celebrations are introduced by pitchers and not just pitchers, but relief pitchers. And there, there isn't really a consensus as to why she suggests the idea that relief pitchers have a lot of time on their hands and most of them are very weird. And so like, it, it makes sense why they would be the ones to like introduce this thing, which got me thinking, who do you think is responsible for this new uh, dugout celebration? So, okay, so if we're going to narrow this down to the bullpen, ass slap, kind of gay, not Brooks Raley. Um, no. yeah, <laughs> I think we can immediately cross him off the board. Um, I feel like Adovino's weird, but in a different way. Like, Adovino's, like, very earthy and kind of, like, chill. I don't think this is him. If I had to guess, I feel like it's one of, like, the lesser relievers, you know? Mm. It, it feels it doesn't feel like it's a Robertson like not a not a main level reliever don't think it's Drew Smith um you would definitely want to get down into the weeds I don't know what the like lesser bullpen guys 
things are. I could definitely off of vibes. I could definitely see it being Tommy Hunter. I feel mm, like I he'd be that guess. level of weird. Like he would be like, it would be really funny if we just slapped our asses for the celebration. Like him, his vibes. I, I, if if out of the ones whose personalities I really know well, really feel like it could be him because I don't really know the personalities of like Dominic Leone and Jimmy Yakabonis and and Jeff Brigham yet. They haven't been with the team long enough. If of the ones I know, Tommy Hunter really feels like a good suspect for this one. Tommy Hunter's a good shout. He was one of two people that I suspected. I, like you, don't think that either Ottavino or Robertson had a hand in this. I think both of them are just kind of too veteran and serious to come up with something like this. Um, I don't doubt that someone like Drew Smith could come up with something like this. I doubt that Drew Smith has any say at all with anything. Like, Drew Smith, to me... Is this a short thing where, like, I suspect that he's never choosing the restaurant they're going to after games? Like, I, I don't think Drew Smith has any say in anything <laughs> whatsoever. So I don't think it's him. Um, I, I, I think Tommy Hunter is an excellent guess. He was one of the two that I was thinking of. I think he has both the goofiness but also the long-term cachet with the rest of the team. The one wild card I think might be an interesting suspect is Dominic Leone. And that's not because I know anything about Dominic Leone. I know nothing about Dominic Leone. But what I know is that Dominic Leone did not join this team until like a few days ago. And a day or two after Leone joins this team, this celebration appears. The timing seems curious is all that I'm saying about this. And I, I don't want to like, you know, put this on anyone or, or make any accusations whatsoever. Um, but I think Dominic Leone has already made his annual contribution to the team. I, I think he can pitch very poorly uh, from here on out if he indeed is the one that introduced <laughs> this to the team, because, Hey, they're one and oh with this celebration intact. Like, I don't know of any other, you know, relief pitcher that's brought as much to this team, you know, besides Ottavino and, and Robertson as this celebration has. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of it too. Uh, I, I don't exactly know who, who brought it on, but uh, yeah, I, I think this is definitely one of, one of the better ones in major league baseball. It definitely makes sense to me. And I mean, I know the nature of how the game played yesterday that Mark Hanna would really be the first person to do it just because he got the first big hit of the game. Yes. But it really makes sense to me that Mark Hanna is also the first one to do it on the field. Because, like, if you, like, again, if going in line with the, like, Brooks Raley definitely didn't create this thing. Um, I'm sure part of me thinks, like, oh, yeah, I think he, like, if he, if he, he, he might. But, like, I don't see Brandon Nimmo doing this. No. Unless everyone else is doing it, then I can see him doing it. It's like, oh, we're just having fun or whatever. But as the first person to do it, no way is he taking that on. Mark Canna, he has the personality for that. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very happy it was Canna. Like, I, I, I can't imagine Pete Alonso doing it with any sort of, of, of style or grace. <laughs> I, uh, I can't imagine Francisco Alvarez just being bold enough to do it. He's still really like funny. still earning his lungs, and he <laughs> now needs to like introduce this celebration to the world. Yeah, Mark Hanna was the perfect one to do it. He's um, he, he's not shy whatsoever. He's he's very comfortable with himself and his belief and his body, and as well he should be. And uh, I I'm glad too that uh, Mark Hanna was the one who introduced this uh, to the rest. But yeah, the the question now is like who participates and who doesn't. When, when is the first Nimmo ass slap we see? I don't know. I mean, we saw the whole dugout get into it on that one that one hit. That was fun. Um, yeah, Alonzo. It's gonna look really weird when Alonzo does it. I, I do hope that they all pick it up. Remember a couple years ago when they were doing this for the Churve? Yes. Which was like a weird time to, to be doing this at the ballpark. Um, But I would really like it to be like that, where then the whole fans in the stands start slapping. I think that would be like a really funny thing for the fans to be doing as well. Like if everyone bought in on the ass slap. We need this to, we need them to turn really turn it on now. Because remember when they tried to do the salt and paper, pepper thing in like 2018 and they just sucked the whole year and that really yeah. fell away? I'd love to see this catch on. Yeah, uh, and I, I I also noticed that like the 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 players in the dugout that took to it to most were all the beautiful people 
it, it was it was Francisco Lindor's David Peterson that had no problem standing up on the top step and showing everyone. And then there were just like a few kind of like hiding behind the fence, like doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, Daniel Vogelback, I think. He got be. into it. Oh, so happy for him. <laughs> that was great. That's the first one that came to my mind. I was like, yes, I can't wait to see him do it on the base path. Go Vogi. Uh, I don't know when the next time we're going to see Vogi hit a double, uh, but uh, maybe he can do it from first base. We'll see. Yeah, if he drives in a run, yeah. Uh, do you have a movie for us this week? I do. I actually, I, I'm i going to go back to what I did the first episode. I have two, but they tie together. Um, first one, I saw the movie Air last week about the making of the Air Jordan. Um, really, really good movie. Jerry Maguire vibes would be how I'd describe it. Um, ben Affleck has the juice as a director just let him make whatever the hell he wants i haven't seen live by night but i've seen the rest of his movies and i think they're all great um matt damon's great in it it has a insane soundtrack from what i understand this thing literally like half the money for the movie went to the soundtrack like the soundtrack budget was insane they actually had to they wanted to use more songs for this thing it's just like born in the usa and i like i literally you watch and you're like oh my god they got this song oh my god they got this song to the point that they actually didn't i was reading they didn't have the money for a composer for a score for the film so he would then just ben affleck just found other movie scores that fit in the moment and put them in where like they needed like a moment of like music um really interesting how they sort of they didn't really show michael jordan which i think is an interesting way to go about that but it basically it's about like the making of the shoe and it's more about like he was he was doing his own thing at the time he was in college or whatever he was getting drafted um by the chicago bulls and obviously um it was a lot of his his parents his and especially his mother who's played by viola davis who of course is fantastic like she always is it's filled with actors that you go and you go oh oh man jason bateman oh chris messina and they're all just giving as great of a performance as you could ever expect from them it's super fun um it's quick like i was really surprised by the editing of the film i think i it's like an hour and 50 minutes or something like that hour 52 minutes hour 55 um and i was sitting there and at one point i was like okay no this is like an hour and 50 minutes uh i feel like we're probably got like an hour left maybe 15 minutes left feels like we're right around like the 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 middle just it it feels felt like that was the amount of time that had passed and i looked at my phone there was like 25 minutes left like it flew um it's just a really fun movie i did not expect that the movie about the shoes would make me cry but matt damon gives a great speech and i just waterworks yeah it was really and it's on it's on amazon prime if you have prime video it's free to stream so that's where it's available right now because Prime uh, is the distributor for the film. Um, it was their first theatrical release since Late Night in 2019, another movie I loved. Uh, the other movie I want to talk about just debuted on ESPN yesterday. I believe it's available to stream on Prime. You have to pay three bucks or whatever. It might be on other services too, but I know it's on Prime. Uh, Unfinished Business. This is a little documentary that was at Tribeca, I think, last year. And then it was waiting. It finally is getting released now. It's showing in a few theaters in New York City. I don't know if it's showing in other markets as well, other metro areas. Um, it's about the the WNBA through the lens of the New York Liberty. Um, I'm a big New York Liberty fan. I'm wearing a Sabrina Nescu shirt right now because she just extended for two more years, and I'm very happy. Um, but it is. I was I was expecting it to be good. The Allison Clayman, who's made the who made the film, has made other very acclaimed documentaries, uh, which I'm now going to go check them all out because I think she's a very good filmmaker. Um, but it is what's great about it is that it does sort of a two timeline thing, where it's sort of the the beginnings of the WNBA through the the history of the WNBA. But it starts at the beginning of the W with specifically the Liberty, but also generalized, but it does hone in on the Liberty and the team that was there at that time with Rebecca Lobo and Teresa Weatherspoon and Sue Wicks and Crystal Robinson, Kim Hampton, just one of the best teams in the league at that point. Like they were consistently in the playoffs, consistently in in contention. I think they made three finals in five years or whatever. Um, They never won, unfortunately. They're still looking for it. And then it also focused on the 2021 Liberty, when they were sort of starting to peak at contention. They had just drafted UNESCO the year before. Uh, they had signed Bet Nigelani, who is one of my favorite players. Um, they had traded for Natasha Howard and Sammy Whitcomb, and they're, they, you know, sort of it cuts between the two. What What's great about the film is that it hits on the fact that the league was very 
progressive without the actual league itself wanting to be like the people in charge of the league were like we've got to keep this available to like straight families and like make them want to come and then the players were just like no we're gonna we're gonna be ourselves we're gonna we're gonna talk about ourselves sue wicks was one of the first openly gay players in the league she came out in like 1999 i think it was to a reporter just the reporter said my my editor really wants me to ask this are you gay and she was like yeah yeah and and sort of the way that they sort of got forced into that position the way that they had sort of this high attendance and it went down and it it wasn't really the fault of the players so much as the the body like it wasn't that the league was bad anyone who actually watches the league is going to tell you this league is this is the best of the best this is the premier basketball league in the world with 144 of the best players playing this is a great game and it's great product and it's just the result of misogyny and homophobia not wanting to acknowledge that these players are good or that they're worth your time. Right. And it's really it's really effective to sort of see what it would do is it'd be like, okay, Suix came out as gay. Well, here on the, the Liberty Now, they've got like four or five openly gay players. Right. And, you know, the back then Teresa Weatherspoon was just carrying that team on her back, but they weren't really it was her and Rebecca Lobo they were focusing more on Rebecca Lobo because she was white and she was more feminine and she was easier to market. Mm -hmm. And you look now and you have all of these big players. You still have that problem, obviously. I mean, the team right now is as it stands, and they touch on this at the end. Sabrina Inescu, John Quell Jones, but Nigel Laney, uh, Brianna Stewart and Vandersloot, Courtney Vandersloot are their starting five this season. They're a super team. Um, They've definitely, even in years past, advertised Ionescu and Stewie more than they've advertised players like Laney and and Jonquil Jones. Mm. There's a reason for that, and it is not a valid reason, but there is a reason for that. And and it's not the players' fault. Again, this is not the the players aren't going out there and being like, "Look at me more." It's just that's the way the league continues to do this. Right. It's a great documentary to sort of look at this league that I think has a bad rap for no reason. Mm. The, There's the, you. Sorry. You I, I, I was going to ask, does this documentary focus solely on the Liberty or does it focus on other league issues as well? It focuses primarily like the Liberty is sort of, I would say the lens into the league. So it focuses on the Liberty's history because they are of the original franchises. They're the only ones that haven't won a championship. They've had a lot of ups and downs, but it does, go into the rest of the league like it doesn't ignore these other these other teams and the other issues chartered flights pay uh scale like there's a there's a whole section where they talk about the fact that a lot of these players can't live solely on the wnba salary these are professional athletes if you are making league minimum in the nba you can really just play in the nba right if you're making league minimum in the WNBA, you either need to play overseas in the offseason or you need to just, I mean, Teresa Weatherspoon talks about it in the thing. You would see these rookies, these people making league minimum, even the people making the most salary in the WNBA at the time, in the offseason working at a McDonald's or a Burger King or a Wendy's because they needed to have income and they mm -hmm. weren't getting that income from the league. And it touches on that. It touches on the attendance issues and the fact that ownership buy-in was really bad in like the late 2000s, early 2010s. I mean, luckily now you have owners like um, the the Liberty's owners, the size who also own the the Nets and Barclays, right. which the the Liberty play at Barclays now. Um, but for a minute, when towards the end of Joe of uh, James Dolan's ownership of the team, because he used to own it, he moved them from MSG to some little arena upstate in Westchester where the leak was roofing it the roof was <laughs> the leak was roofing. the roof was leaking and it was used primarily for like high school competitions and now the liberty are putting there and that was literally like a slap in the face of the league and the team i don't view you as being important enough to play at msg right or in 2021 i believe it was the finals the nba the wnba finals were being played partially in phoenix um and they had to play at a different they had played a college arena because their arena was being used for a concert during those games now that just happened this season during the playoffs at, in atlanta atlanta was going to host janet jackson performing where the hawks play janet jackson got bumped for the atlanta hawks that doesn't yeah. happen for the wnba the wnba gets bumped for whoever the musician is playing in their arena um these are still issues 
that are facing the league. Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the league, is is for all the complaints about Rob Manfred in the in MLB. There's this there's a lot of there's a similar amount of complaints about Kathy Engelbert. She she runs the league similarly poorly. Um, but you have more ownership buy-in now, and I think that that I think we're 27 years now. This is the 27th season. That was the other the other reason why they wanted to focus on the season in 2021 was it was the 25th season. They were doing a lot of promotion about 25 years of the W we're 27 years in now and you're just, you're seeing now finally more buy-in and more promotion than there was at the start because the start was like, Oh, this is, this is it. We've got Olympians. We've got the best players in the world. You know, we've got Rebecca Lobo and Lisa Leslie and Cheryl swoops. And you want to come and see these people play basketball. There was a drop in league attendance in the mid to late 2000s to the early 2010s which has since picked up but the funny thing is that the liberty didn't really have that mm. the liberty were averaging nine ten thousand people a year until they moved to westchester and then they were only averaging about three thousand people a game right so it was it the, the liberty have consistently had that that thing and the film touches on that and I just think I, I genuinely I was surprised at how good this documentary was because it sort of got pushed around on the schedule, didn't come out immediately after it premiered at the festival, it took a while for that to happen. It's eye opening. And I, I want to now go and watch because I know that there are other documentaries about similar issues with like pay disparity in the um, U.S. soccer with the mm. women's soccer team versus the men's soccer team. And I, I'm interested to watch those. But I do think that this one for three bucks and it's like an hour and 50 minutes, totally worth your time. And hopefully it'll convert some people into being fans, not just of the Liberty, but of the league in general. So uh, I am someone who is a big basketball fan, but during the summer, I focus all of my attention on baseball as as someone who doesn't follow the NBA, sorry, the WNBA. What is my entrance point? Like, what do you recommend I do to pay attention like it's what what channels do i need to subscribe to what what websites do do i look at what what exactly would you recommend i do as someone who doesn't follow the wnba at all so there's the league pass if you're interested it's like 25 dollars a month i think and you can stream any wnba game that's outside of your market just like every other league pass that that and any sports league has your team is going to be blacked out which i believe for you would probably be the sparks um they're probably on some channel because again Unlike the mid to late 2000s, there is buy-in in these areas, and the Sparks have good buy-in from their their lead, their ownership, and everything like that. Um, I would recommend it. It's it's weird because I I follow the the Liberty, which is kind of easy to follow just because they're on Yes, and you know I was I made a concerted effort. Really, I'm trying to think. It's been three or four years since the reason why I got into the league was the Liberty drafting UNESCO. And I went, Oh man, that, that, that looks cool. She looks like she's a great player. I want to follow her career. Um, there's a lot of really good, uh, WNBA. Like if you, if you really, if you go onto Twitter and ha put hashtag WNBA Twitter, it's going to bring you all sorts of tweets from everyone, but there's a lot of really good reporters on it. Um, I would also recommend if you want a good entry point into just knowing what the league's about, I am a big fan of the Locked On Women's Basketball podcast, which does go into college as well, but they have six podcasts a week and they cover all the teams in the league, including you'll get team-specific episodes where it'll be like, okay, today we're going to talk, like these these hosts talk about the Sparks. These hosts talk about the Mercury. I know Howard Megdahl and Jackie Powell talk about the Liberty on there. So when I see that they have a podcast come out, I listen to that. Um and really, it's just, if you find your team, if you go, you just start watching the games. There's f This year is the most games they've ever had in the season. They have 40 games this summer. It is not a huge amount of, of time that you have to dedicate. It's half right. the NBA season over the course of the summer. There's a all-star game in July. So it's going to start, the season starts this weekend, um, right. depending on, on which team it is. Just try a game. Honestly, if you want to watch the Sparks, see where they, I don't know where they broadcast in, in, California, in California, what channel they're on. Um, if you're here in New York, the Liberty are on. Yes. If you have access to yes, if not, I know that you can, I'm a Bulls fan. I know that you, sometimes you have to illegally stream your favorite teams. The same thing is the case with the W you can do that. You can find W streams online through the same reddits that have the NBA, uh, streams. And it's just, you know, give it a try. It's not the, 
I feel like the big talking point for people who don't watch, who will never watch, but who claim to know the reason why the W isn't successful is, oh, they don't dunk enough. Oh, there's not, you know, the scores aren't high enough. A, they play two minutes less each quarter than the than the regular NBA. So the regular NBA is 12 minutes a quarter. The, the W is only 10. Um, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of dunks. Occasionally you'll get Brittany Griner dunking or Sylvia Fowles, who just retired. She'll dunk. I know that Nigel Laney just attempted to dunk during a preseason game, which is insane. And I hope I see her do it with my own two eyes because I think that'd be fun. It's a lot more... It's it's I don't want to sound like I'm dissing the men's game because I'm obviously I'm a Bulls fan. I do enjoy the men's game. It's more it's with less dunks. There's more um, movement, I would say, would be the thing. You'll see some of the craziest passes. I've, I've watched UNESCO with my own two eyes. I've gone to see games. She is one of the most insane passers. Her, Maureen Johannes, they're the talent level in the league, once you actually make the moment, the, the decision, okay, I'm actually going to sit down and give this a fair shot, which I wish more people would do, especially seeing the buy-in on the recent women's basketball NCAA tournament. Mm. Like that had an insane amount of coverage. And everyone's talking about Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese. And these people are going to, these women are going to be in the WNBA, if not this season, because they weren't eligible this season, but people like Haley Jones and Aaliyah Boston, who just went number one overall, they're going to be in the league this year. They're not just disappearing for forever. You can continue to follow these people into the league. It's right. It's a fun, fast game. And yeah, the scores aren't as high. But also, you'll see these women make some insane... Def- I've watched people dive into the bleachers to save balls. And like, no regard for their own body. There's a there's a whole section in the thing about Dee Dee Richards, who's on the Liberty. She got paralyzed playing in college. And she Jeez. worked her way back. And is now in the W, continuing to make these insane defensive plays. But she literally, she had to learn how to walk again. That's the level of dedication that these players have. Is that they? She learned how to walk again, and her first thought was like, I'm not letting basketball be taken away from me. Uh, Grace, I don't appreciate the presumption that I would root for the Sparks. I don't root <laughs> for Los Angeles teams. Uh, and and yeah, I, I have wanted to like check out a Liberty game in a while. And this may be... Uh, the stupidest reason, I don't know if I buy into their color scheme right now. I'm not a huge fan of the, the green and black. You're not, you're not in on seafoam season? Uh, they call it seafoam even? Seafoam season, baby. I, I am, I am less into it now than <laughs> I was 10 seconds ago. I will give it a shot. I think me personally. I don't care what team you root for. You could root for, you know, any team. I was just, you know, the Sparks are the ones that are closest to you. If you're not going to root, root for the Liberty, just don't root for the Aces. What, what's wrong with the aces? <laughs> because no, I, they're 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 generally like I actually I like most of their players. I like Asia Wilson. I like Kelsey Plum. I love Candace Parker. Obviously, legend. She's going to be a Hall of Famer. Um, the actual way that their team runs behind the scenes this offseason has um left a lot to be desired. And I just I don't I don't know that I agree. I mean, obviously, the Mets are there's probably shit going on behind the scenes with the Mets and every MLB team and every NBA team. I'm a fan of the Bulls. Jerry Reinsdorf's an asshole. But it's not a great look turning to your pregnant player who's going to be ready in time for the season and going, we're trading you because you're pregnant. And then being like, us? We didn't do anything wrong. That 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 doesn't seem like good strategy. Seems yeah, it's like a, actually against the CBA. Employees. So they're now getting investigated. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I can see your point now. Um, if if I'm going to be downloading the Yes Network anyway to watch the Nets in the fall, then I, I I don't see a reason why I shouldn't check out the Liberty. Yeah, they wear black jerseys sometimes. You could just ignore it's, the it's not the, It's not the it's the, it's the green. It's the green <laughs> and the see? black. And <laughs> I, I'll I'll give it I'll give it to them for for this. It's unique. I, I have not seen any other team with that color combination in college or pro sports. Listen, the black and the seafoam works better together than when it was white, seafoam, blue, and orange because they were owned by James Dolan. Those looked bad. What's wrong with blue and orange? It's not that there's the wrong with blue and orange. It's that the blue and orange mixed with the seafoam. Ah, okay. Okay. (laughs) That's a weird combo. It is a weird combo. That's for sure. That's for sure. All right. Uh, Well, I think that's a good spot to end this week's episode. Grace, do you have uh, any parting thoughts about the Mets or the Liberty or anything else on your mind? 
once again, I'm really hoping that the Mets win the game I'm going to this week. I'm going Thursday to see them play the Rays, which will most likely be started by Tyler McGill, which I don't know what the real number is, but it certainly feels like the 150th time I've ever seen him pitch in person. Um, and I don't like it. So hopefully they pull that one out of their ass. And um, I'm going to the Liberty home opener on Sunday against the Indiana Fever. Um, hoping that's a good one. And hopefully they'll wear the most seafoamiest jerseys they have. Um, do they sell Do they sell top deck tickets for Liberty games? What's that? Oh, the like the third deck at Barclays Center. I'm, no, I'm only uh, asking um, because I've heard the third deck is like the worst seat in professional sports. Uh, at, yeah, that I think they closed. When I went, I went last year for the Sue Bird retire- retirement game. They had that closed off. So I think they closed that off. Um, but when they closed that, I mean, if that's, I, I've never sat up there. It's closed off. Mm-hmm. But um, every other seat in there is fantastic. Like I, I. I love, I actually love Barclays. I, I, some people think that's like heresy that I'd say that. I think it's a really nice stadium um, or arena or whatever. Uh, but yeah, they close that, but it does, they, the games sell really well there. I oh. mean, then they always have. The Liberty are like historically one of the best attended teams in the league. So they, when they close that top deck, you, it, it's packed and it's really, it's fun in there. Season opener, May 21st. Yeah, uh, let's go. Seafoam season. See foam season. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that, we're gonna we're gonna take off. See you next week, everyone. Bye.